My reason for coming here was not for any way to support Palestine over Israel or anything like this, and it wasn't for, I don't know, to go to protests and, mm. you know, very actively be part of the conflict. My purpose for coming here was to learn Arabic. Yeah, I just wanted to form opinions really slowly, and if you grew up in Palestine or Israel, of course you form opinions slowly because you're growing up and mm. you don't even realise it's not even a conscious yeah. thing, it's not an active thing, but it's your whole life experience, and so... I don't know whether calling myself an activist would impede that, but I think it might. What's it like to be a Westerner in Ramallah? In Ramallah? In a way, it's almost the norm. From what I've seen of Ramallah, it's kind of... All the friends that I have are kind of activist Palestinians who hang out with a lot of Westerners, or just the Westerner community in general, which is quite massive. I mean, I walked to I walked to the station yesterday before eight o'clock, and you just see like all, all the people who were just walking down the main Jaffa Street are just all Westerners going to work. So I think comparatively to Nablus, it's like you're not anything special necessarily. But still, to the fact that maybe people will honk at you in their cars when they drive past you, and it's like, hey, Ajanab, <laughs> foreigner. Ajanab. I don't think anyone's surprised to see you around. And especially with the nightlife as well, most of it is Westerners. Or kind of half-half, the Berset bourgeois. How does that, like, how does that make you feel? Does that make you feel comfortable or does that make you feel, like, annoyed? I mean, I can only speak, like, coming from Nablus, so in a way it makes me feel more comfortable because although Nablus was kind of my hometown at the time, it you're always an outsider there. Yeah, people were always surprised to see you around or, like, wanted to talk to you and stuff. Which at first was nice, and then after a few months got really, really tiresome. So it's kind of nice, in a way, almost just being a little bit invisible. Not to the same extent as you are in London or something like that, but it's a lot more relaxing. I I don't feel as, like, conscious of myself (laughs) when I walk in. I mean, also just something I always think about, of course, is that, you know, women are never invisibilised. We're always exoticised to some degree, but that... How does it feel, I guess, like maybe being a Western woman? Also, I never yeah. think of myself as Western except for when I'm not in the West. Not <laughs> I mean... Is it, it feels a bit weird calling myself a Western woman. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, I think, again, it's a different crowd in Ramallah because there are so many people who are very international and people who travel a lot or people who have international friends. So I think the exoticization is a bit less but then again in the rest of Palestine the only almost exposure they've had to western culture and western women is from media which can well a lot of the time just gives a very sexualized image so does that feel like a fun challenge to play with because it's really fun for me (laughs) um I don't know a lot of the time I found it just a bit frustrating almost yeah kind of being expected to be the same as this uh, film stereotype which can be quite sexualized as well because I don't know just naturally for me that makes me go like Bleh. but then I suppose that's comparable to anyone who's non-western in the west who becomes sexualized and exoticized as well due to media does that give you like a sense of not tolerance but uh, more understanding for maybe non-westerners in the west yeah yeah I think so I feel like it's not but I feel like it's not something which is exclusive to Palestine and it doesn't make me I don't know angry against Palestinian men or anything because I I suppose I can kind of understand 
as to why they think that way. And it is a, it is a shame because, I mean, with women it's a little bit different. You don't necessarily, especially with the female friends I have, they don't necessarily have this like sexualized image of Western women. But I know it does exist as well. Is that um, women can be like cautious of Western women because they think that can like sleep with their husbands or something like that. But that's all from media. So also. I think it's something that maybe people just need to be more aware about, but I don't necessarily feel personally victimised from it because, yeah, it would be unnecessary to do so. <laughs> but as far as, yeah, playing, to play with that stereotype, I don't know, it's quite hard because uh, I suppose a lot of the stereotypes is like Western women who drink and sleep around and stuff like that. Are all true. Yeah. Sorry, just speaking for myself. No, no, exactly, but it is. It's kind of... Yeah, it's true. <laughs> but it doesn't mean I'm going to sleep with you. Yeah, yeah. On another part, I feel so much of what Ramallah is and what Ramallah is perceived on is it's kind of a city which became so big so quickly and a lot of that was due to the presence of NGOs and stuff. So I always feel that Ramallah as a city, it's kind of always had that international presence like in the modern day Ramallah. So that's so much part of what Ramallah is. It's like it's the city for internationals in the West Bank. So I think Palestinians feel like that. <laughs> well, yeah, Palestinians know that. But, uh, I mean, a lot of Palestinians also say, like, Ramallah has no soul, it's not representative of the West Bank, which is true, because in all the other cities, maybe with the exception to Bethlehem, you don't have that much presence of Westerners or that much influence as well. It's still, like, in a lot of Palestine, it's very cultural and traditional. And, yeah, you just don't see that in Ramallah. Uh, and it, much of the traditional society I mean you kind of do in like the, the smaller houses and there are obviously people who have lived here since when it was still a village but I think the whole of Ramallah is kind of built around like the tourism business and the internationals who live here and that's why it has things like bars and clubs and a lot of hotels which you wouldn't find in other places I always feel really guilty about it but yeah. I also like profit off my own guilt but why do you anyway, feel bad about it? um well, like, NG- I, I, you know, like, the debate about the NGOization of Ramallah. Yeah. If we're helping. Not, I'm, I'm not doing a damn thing, but I'm in. Do you, is that something you quarrel with, or do you think it's maybe not quite the issue? Like, um, are NGOs helping or not? Are Westerners an impediment or, like, a cool, fun thing? Yeah, I suppose it totally depends on who you ask. For Palestinians as well. Maybe the fact that there are these NGOs established here, which made Romello a place where tourists will come to, and a lot of like political tourists or people who go to Israel and would never think of going to Palestine, like I suppose they'd choose to come to Ramallah because almost like people have described it as the Europe of the Europe of Palestine. So <laughs> yeah, so I suppose in some part, like people may be glad for that because it sees a different economy to what is present in other cities and it's easier for you like you're like easier and more pleasant like from Nablus yeah it's easier for us as well but it's also easier for I think Palestinians who are a bit more I don't want to use the term liberal or westernized really but you know I I think it's easier for Palestinians who don't want to live in the traditional society but who want to live in West Bank like I think Ramallah is maybe that place because they get to meet people who are international 
they're still in the same country as their family and everything, but mm. it's a bit more free. So I think people are glad for it for that aspect. But then also there is the other argument about kind of, you know, like the um, dilution of culture and also the whole issue of NGOs and whether they're actually helping. I think yeah. due to the conflict and stuff, Palestine was always going to be a place which would attract NGOs because, yeah. of course. Like taking it off and just that would happen anyway. Yeah, so maybe in a way it's good that sort of that whole kind of international thing is kind of in a way diluted into Ramallah. And it hasn't really gone to too many other cities like it has Ramallah. So I suppose it's quite pocketed. I've got, I've got to say I just don't feel like a lot of guilt for being an international in Palestine, which I know a lot of people do, but I just have no guilt for it or I have no guilt for living the life with the privileges that having that being an international here has personally I don't feel too connected to the colonial background like I like to live here and I like to spend time here and like a lot of people I meet they're always like so happy that like people from England have come to Ramallah or not Ramallah just Palestine in general just like they were happy when people from England came to Palestine before anyway yeah sorry no no but this is what I mean is kind of I just don't have any like historical relation to Palestine so but at the same time, I mean, I don't see it as kind of a home country or anything. Like, I enjoy living here and stuff like that. And obviously I have my opinion and everything on the conflict. And I have a very clear side to it as well. Yeah, I don't know, it's, but but that's the point. Is like, that's why I'm living in West Bank and not living in Israel, <laughs> I suppose. Because of your politics and... Yeah, yeah, and I don't think I would live in Israel, but yeah. then... And also you're studying Arabic. Yeah, yeah, so... Yeah. Mm. yeah. Do you like Ramallah, Lola? I mean, I think it's obvious that Ramallah has a very different... It's a very different experience living in Ramallah compared to other cities, but I don't think there's any value in me lamenting a supposed loss of culture because that kind of narrative, in my eyes, assumes some kind of static culture that was always there and pure and idealised and historicised. But that doesn't necessarily exist because this has always been a very contested and international place in terms of its historic and religious relevance and so it's always been changing and but like let's be real it belongs to the jews just kidding (laughs) (laughs) i had a train of thought no i've totally sorry i don't i don't think that i don't feel any i don't think there's any value in me personally as a british woman lamenting the differences between nablus and Ramallah, those are the two places I've lived, because Nablus itself isn't static. And when you read about the history of Nablus, it has shifted in terms of its conservatism and in terms of its openness, even if those are lines that we find difficult and problematic. Nablus is changing, Jericho is changing, Hebron is changing, Bethlehem is changing, Ramallah is also changing, and maybe Ramallah is changing on a trajectory that is more easily mapped towards westernisation, easternisation. And so it's easier for us to quantify that with our own experience. But I don't feel any need to lament it or feel guilt about living yeah. here. I, I'm not quite sure how to phrase this so it isn't like a lead-in question, but like, what is it like hmm, being a person who's studying in Palestine... But and also obviously having political frames of reference that are guiding you. Like, what is that like as opposed to, like, coming into Palestine for activism? But also I came here for activism and I'm hanging out. So, I mean, like, what is it to, to have a goal? <laughs> um, 
I don't really consider myself an academic because that seems like a hat that I haven't earned, but I definitely wouldn't consider myself an activist. It's a strange thing to have studied something in a very formal way and read something, you know, spent hours in the library reading and theorising and debating with your lecturers, and then to be in that as a real experience is a strange leap to make, but a lot of the experience that I had at university was trying to deconstruct, because I study Arabic and history, and so a lot of the history that I studied was trying to deconstruct historians who made that leap and didn't realise that they were making it. So they read about the Orient, and then they travelled to the Orient, and then they wrote these grand travelogues about their adventures in the Orient and how wonderful and strange and, you know, peculiar and unknowable it was. And Mm -hmm. the stage of history that we were studying was trying to deconstruct that and trying to sort of analyse cultures on their own terms and break down the binary of, like, East and West and examine whether that had any legitimacy or whether it was a sort of self... whether it sort of reproduced itself over time. And so I was studying that in a very theoretical sense and I came here with a heightened awareness of, oh, I don't want to be that person writing a travel log, or I suppose the modern equivalent would be a blog, and then... Being, like theorising it to such an extent that I never actually looked at it yeah I mean before I came here I studied a lot about Palestinian history and I mean I was read on like the current conflict and such things but I kind of kept that as it was something that I studied but I was never personally connected to <laughs> like I found it interesting but I think because also it was so sort of separate, I'd never been to Palestine. So I only knew about it from academia and it kind of made me a bit sort of like distanced from it. And then when I came here, I purely saw it as a year abroad and like I'm here to learn Arabic. I don't expect much else to happen. Like I suppose you'll see like the conflict, but also I didn't, I didn't necessarily expect to see much sort of firsthand occupation or anything I wasn't aware of it to that extent like I knew it was going on but I didn't know like how visible it would be I had no expectations at all so and you're yeah. and, and you have been more enmeshed than you thought yeah yeah like it was definitely more visible than I expected it to be but I mean I think it has led me to kind of make more take more sides personally or make more like personal opinions on the conflict and such things but also I still feel that I'm not well read enough or well or even connected enough to it to call myself an activist it was sort of maybe something that came on the side but also I feel I mean right now my purpose still was to be here to learn Arabic and I'm not as concerned right now as putting myself out there so much as like an activist and being involved in activism and going to demonstrations and such things I've been to a couple of demonstrations which I supported the cause for the demonstration but I mean I'm not vocal about it online or anything Hmm. and I'm kind of yeah I keep a step back from that for now for a while I learn Arabic and hopefully learn more about it but I still I still feel it's the thing where I just don't personally feel connected about enough to it to call myself an activist for it for me, for me, there seems to be one defined way of being an activist and being active, especially as a foreigner in this context. And if you are not, if your actions are not in that specific frame and definition, 
then it's almost like you're not contributing as you should be. Sorry, what did, did you just say? There is one way. F- yeah, from what I from what I've experienced, oh, what is there's the way? maybe this is more. I don't know what to say. Wait, so what am, I, what am I saying? What am I saying? There seems to be a very defined way of being an activist because it's such a contested issue, right? That if you don't state yourself on one side or the other, then you your like, silence is yeah. Kind of I mean, that's the supporting this. Sorry, you talk, not me. Sorry. Yeah. But, yeah, I, since coming here, I wanted to form my opinions really slowly. Yeah. And I meet a lot of people... Because I, when I was, rent, I was renting a room over Christmas that was below a hostel, and I wasn't in the hostel, I was just in a flat. That's an interesting experience. But it, we were always hanging out with people who were staying in the hostel, and they... In Nablus? No, in Ramallah, in Ramallah. Oh. And the majority of them had such good intentions, but from my perception of it, they formed their opinions so quickly that a lot of the nuances just passed them by. And obviously it's a huge privilege that I have to stay here for a whole ten months without leaving once. And so I have been able to form my opinions more slowly. Perhaps if I stayed here for long enough, then I would become, like, connected, like, become more passionate around a particular side to it. But I think from being almost such an outsider to it and being so open to all sides of it. It's also allowed me to meet, like, many different people. Like, I've met people who are completely anti-Israel. Like, they want just the state of Israel to be I'm gonna, completely taken back. I'm going to mosquito around top of you and it's driving me Yeah, yeah, sorry. Mosquito doesn't bite me. But, um... And I've also met people who want the two-state solution or people who would be happy for it all to be called Israel and for people to just be able to live there. Hmm. And so I've made friends with all these people with very different opinions. And it's interesting to hear them talk about it, but I feel I'm yet, I'm yet to know enough about it and I'm yet to feel so deeply about it as to follow one of those opinions. Yeah. I think that's a cultural legacy that we have, by the way, especially studying in a British university. Of We're so aware that British people have come here and stated their opinions very loudly. Mm, and yeah. so when we study it in an academic context, as British students having studied at a British university, it's like, have you not had enough of us, people with our accents, <laughs> stating yeah, yeah. very loudly? Maybe, yeah, it's like a hesitation on like giving an opinion, because, yeah, I very rarely do give an opinion on it, or... Yeah, but I just, I've, in a way, I don't feel like I'm entitled to give an opinion. Like I said, I have no historical connection to Palestine, so why should I have an opinion on it? Yeah. But I think, yeah. I think maybe that also comes with you hang out do, with... You do have a historical connection to Palestine, I think. If you think about it linguistically, the second language here is English. But if we were, go to, to, if we were to go to Beirut, for example, then it would yeah. be French. My French is really terrible, <laughs> and I'm trying to I'm trying to get better on Duolingo. But still, that's a that's a historical connection that we have. That's a side point. Lola's <laughs> <laughs> trying to improve herself. Anyway, <laughs> that was the adverts in um, Rebecca's podcast. Join Duolingo today. But it is really great. <laughs> anyway, that's a historical connection that we have. The second, the signs being in Arabic and then English is a historical connection that we feel and benefit from. I think, right? That's legacy. Maybe? I suppose, but... I mean, my country also is part of that legacy. Yeah. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) But also, I just personally feel that people shouldn't be held 
I don't know, almost... It's not an accountability, but I think we need to recognise that fact. I think you can recognise your privilege personally, but I don't think it should be recognised as part of a larger thing of being British. Because, well, I mean, for me, it wasn't anything to do with any of my immediate family. You're probably about to speak now. (laughs) (laughs) One thing that I think about a lot in terms of, like, personal responsibility and legacies that precede us that we benefit from, Mm. like... What you were saying about you you came here and you don't want to be inadvertently in the footsteps of these exoticizing travel log writers. Yeah. I personally, for my own battle, that I love having, so maybe I exacerbate the battle because it's fun, but like I personally wonder if it's possible not to become that, regardless of our intentions. I mean, do, do you think it's possible to avoid that fate? Or are the nuances the avoidance, if not the... I mean, if you're a foreigner in a foreign country and Mm. you're, like, interested in something other, are you not a Westerner doing a travelogue? I don't understand your question. Sorry. Yeah, okay, sorry. No, I'm saying that weird. Um... I mean, in the sense that is I will always... Is it possible for us to be neutral? Is it possible for us to... No, 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 there is no neutrality. There is no neutrality at all. And I think the thing that I want to do is recognise the lens I'm seeing it through as something that isn't neutral, as something that's constructed and not even necessarily Western, right? Because my experience here would be completely different if I were to go to another part of the East. I'm waving my hands around in inverted commons. But, uh, yeah, I think it's it's just... Not presuming a line of zero cultural longitude, but recognising that that doesn't exist, but that my like visual experience is on that line, maybe. But then it's also not because I'm a woman who's quite gay, <laughs> and so yeah, I don't know where I'm going with that. Like. We're part of legacies, but we're still not just white, straight men with our boots on going to discover a new land and put our flag down. Yeah. I am not flat. (laughs) Wait, what? I do own some some great boots. I've got no flags. (laughs) Anthropologist boots. Yeah. (laughs) Duck Martins. Yeah. I don't know. I I guess I'm, I'm coming from, like, a different frame from people who are studying and trying to you know, be really conscious and take their time to form mm. opinions. Because, I mean, I, I formed the opinion and then became interested, I guess. Yeah. Mm. So I assume you were kind of active in... And I do feel a connection because I'm angry about the Jews. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I, so, so I suppose you had your kind of opinion formed and everything before you came. To Palestine, although I yeah. went on birthright and I didn't realise anything. And that's what helped. Do you feel like you need to have an opinion Yeah, it? personally. It doesn't mean that it's static. Yeah. But I do think that if... For for maybe also because I'm, um, I feel like maybe I feel more responsibility as a Jew to oppose Israel. It's my responsibility. Otherwise, I, I'll just be used as another you know bullet for Israel. You know, and I don't want to be that. And I think I have like a privilege to to say that not Israel doesn't represent all Jews. But is that kind of accepting the Israeli rhetoric? Pardon. Your burden to have an opinion. 
I don't find it a burden. Because it's not, it's, not, it's not an anvil. Like, it's, okay. it changes. But I don't... I'm in, totally interested in Israeli narratives, but I don't think... I don't think they're right. I mean, I'm interested psychologically. Hmm. The Arabophobia, for lack of a better term, just hmm. in, in Israel, is, like, really frustrating to me. Yeah. Even when half of the population... The half of the Jewish population... Okay, now I'm just telling you my opinion. Of Israel is Arab. Like, from Iraq and Morocco and Yemen. Can I ask you a big question? Yes, please. Yes. Where do you feel the most Jewish? I never thought about it till here. And let me tell you, like, I feel like I'm obsessed with being an American because, like, it's a way of not having to just be a Jew. Like, I'm not religious. I think in Minnesota I felt kind of Jewish because, like, there's not a lot of us there. Like, in New York it doesn't matter if you're yeah. Jewish. I'm, like, offended. I'm, like, one of those people. I'm, like, really annoyed. I'm, like, how can you fucking... All my, like fantasy positives about Jews, Jews being, like, thoughtful. <laughs> like to read books. Not having guns and, like, having stoic faces. How many anyway. Woody Allen films have you seen? <laughs> Too many. <laughs> that, that, but that's this No, I'm, like, so mid-century, like, uncomfortable Jewish man. It's disgusting. <laughs> 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 nah, so, like... Do you, do people want to, do you guys want to drink my wine also? That sounds weird, but like, do you want to? Because also I'm getting yeah, a little bit drunk. Yeah, um, <laughs> do you feel like people assume that you're activists? Because I assume that any Westerner is an activist. This is, I'm still like wrapping up. I don't yeah, mean that in yeah. a bad way, I just mean like this no, is kind of No, no, I know, but it was interesting that you said that because I really don't. <laughs> I'm completely also like, I just don't. Unless the ones who are very vocal about it, because you do meet people who <laughs> come as almost like activism tourists. And they're very, oh, yeah, they're yeah, very yeah, gross. Yeah, they're very... No, I wouldn't... I mean, I wouldn't continue this. It's okay. I mean... No, 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 I didn't consider you an activist in Taurus, unless you'd label yourself as one. But... Probably. Uh, I'm just hanging out But it's a weird word, right? Because to say... No, activism. Because to say that we're not activists is to kind of assume that we're inactive. And I don't feel particularly inactive. It's quite hard learning Arabic. It's quite an active thing to do. We go to the gym a lot. Yeah, we do go to the gym a lot. (laughs) We are members of the gym. But, like, to be politically active and then to say, oh, I don't really consider myself an active, kind of assumes that you're inactive, which... Do you feel even, like, learning a language is a political... I mean, you're not learning Hebrew. No, no but then that, there would... But I feel maybe there would be political motivation behind me, or maybe cultural or religious or anything motivation behind learning Hebrew. Because why would I learn Hebrew? It's only spoken by Israel. Mm. But I think learning a language is inevitably a political act. Because I'm of the train of thought that everything is political in some sense. But you don't have to engage or something? Or you don't no, have no, to. No, no, no. I think I am engaged. But I, the lines. This sounds wrong, by the way. I'm not, I'm not trying to sound so combative. I'm just like trying to understand. And I feel like I'm sounding more combative than I feel. Oh, no, I so you know. That's okay. That's cool. <laughs> I'm just trying to work out in my head. I don't consider myself an activist. Not because I am in it inactive, because I feel the definitions of being an activist are too narrow and I don't want to associate myself with that tribe Mm. but learning a language is a political act and it has ramifications and living here has ramifications and I'm aware of that do you feel that way? I don't feel like language is a political act learning a language I think it's just because I think everything is political. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but then you're just, saying. like, expanding it out, and you're like, oh, I'm having tea, and it's this type of tea, and it's political. Yeah. And then it's just exhausting to consider it on that <laughs> yeah. scale. No, I... Yeah. 
I was a politically, pretty politically unaware 18 year old when I chose my degree. And I purely chose it because I didn't know what That's I wanted cool. to do. I was a pretty, pretty politically unaware 26 year old when I decided <laughs> to be on birthright. So. Yeah, so, and so I don't necessarily consider I think the thing the exception would be Hebrew and that is only because it has become that way because of the state of Israel because it's the only place where it's become the official language yeah and so I think there may be there is a political implication to studying Hebrew are we drawing a distinction between speaking Hebrew and learning Hebrew I think we should yeah what do you mean (laughs) because if you're a kid growing up in Israel and you learn Hebrew you're learning that because that's the language of your family and the language of the country around you. Yeah. Why, why were you interested in taking Arabic? I wanted to do a non-European language, and so I like, applied for Russian and Arabic. Hmm. And I was accepted into both, and my parents were like, oh, you should probably study Arabic? Hmm. Because Russia's cold and you hate cold weather. And I was like, yeah, no. Yeah, fair yeah. enough. <laughs> but I'd studied his- history in both contexts and liked them both. Um, yeah, there was no deep meaning really behind yeah. my choice. I wanted to study anthropology, but I wanted to do it with something else. And anthropology and Arabic was first on the list. Cool. Um, I kind of see being here as a little bit of an escapism, and that's why I'm staying another year because I don't really want to go back to London. Hmm. So, yeah. I think it's just purely the feeling that I think most people get in the year abroad is like, it's all just one big holiday except you go to university as well. So <laughs> I'm quite enjoying it still and that's where I want to stay. Is your attitude abroad different? It's weird considering myself being abroad now because I've been hmm. here, I haven't left, I didn't leave for Christmas. I've been here since September and it's where I live and it's where all my stuff is. I'm abroad in the sense that I have a different passport and I have a different set of privileges. But this is my this is where I live now. It's not my home, per se. But I have Wait, what was the question again? Uh just is your attitude abroad different and I didn't complete the sentence. Yeah. Because I don't know where I would complete it or how. Yeah, I mean that's where you consider yourself abroad. If I when I'm abroad in Spain I feel I'm a guilty tourist because I don't speak any Spanish. Mm. And when I'm over the green line and I don't speak any Hebrew, mm. I feel guilty because I don't speak any Hebrew and I'm mm. a guilty tourist not speaking any Hebrew. But here I speak some Arabic. But it's not so. I don't feel guilty because I'm in that... Wait, where am I going with this? I don't know if I... The answer to your question is I don't know whether I'm abroad right now. Yeah, yeah. That's real. It just got real. (laughs) I'm less tolerant than I used to be. Yeah, but I don't know why. But I just, yeah. Are you? Yeah, yeah, totally am. What do you mean less tolerant? I know, I'm still pretty tolerant, but I was really fucking tolerant. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, in what sense? I don't know, it's just too nice. I'm less nice now. Hmm. But I was, yeah, too nice. I was a bit of a pushover. Like you feel like you have to protect yourself more? No, 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 not necessarily. I think I just don't take people's shit. But maybe that was just an aging mm. thing as well, rather yeah, than yeah. being here. Yeah. I feel like I interact with the world completely differently when I'm in the US, especially in West Philly than here. Yeah, I'd say I'm a bit more... I think I'm London. I'm a bit more rowdy than I would be here. I feel like I'm so <laughs> friendly here. Really? Yeah. Oh. I don't just talk to people. I feel kind of the opposite. 
Kind of mean. People kind of mean, you're mean. No, but like, it's people who I don't really know. Like, if people approach mm. me in the street here, I'm just like, oh, fuck off. Oh, God, I see. I'm the exact opposite. I talk to people on the street. Here. Really? No, I talk to people yeah. on the street in London, but here I'm just like, oh, Whoa, wow. <laughs> that's, that's weird. That's. But no one talks to each other on the street in London. <laughs> no, but that's the thing. So if someone did, you're like, oh, yeah, I'll Maybe that's because we're different here, so people talk Do you know, I made a huge stereotype about London, but it's not true. I did used to talk to people on the street. My landlady used to all the time. So maybe it's like you can, maybe now that you're not there, you're stereotyping it because you don't like remember the reality or something. Yeah, I completely romanticise London because I really missed it. <laughs> that's, I do that all the time. I romanticise America like fucking crazy. Like yeah. who would America, who would romanticise America except for a weird nostalgist? <laughs> I just remember a very Instagrammable version of London, which doesn't exist. Because mm. when you live in London, you just spend all your time either cycling and nearly getting run over by public transport, mm. or being on public transport, because it's so huge. Actually, this is a segue to my last question, which is, can you just tell me briefly about tra- how you travel as a Westerner in the West Bank? I'm welcomed all the time. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to Palestine. You hate that so much. I hate it. <laughs> well, I say welcome back. So welcome. Welcome. Sometimes you will laugh into this. But I was on my last day in Nablus and I had this huge bag because I was moving out. And I was going to the bus thinking, yeah, this is my last day. And then someone shouted welcome and I was like, no! <laughs> no, it's the opposite. Say bye. I'm actually leaving now. But it, um, is it like travelling from like between Nablus and Ramallah what is that like? It's really normal to me now, even when we have to take a huge segue to avoid... A, uh, like, if, if if we take a huge detour to avoid a close checkpoint, that's totally normal to me. Yeah, just stick on some Sister Sledge and fall through it. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, say what? Something sister Sledge? You've never heard of Sister Sledge? Mm-hmm. They're like a funk band from the 70s. Oh, okay. Yeah. Travelling. I mean... Sometimes it's just like commuting. Yeah. My commute to college was way longer than any journey I've done here, so... Really? Yeah, yeah, it used to be like one hour, 40 minutes every day. Well... So, I, no, I don't know, like, the... I mean, it's completely different for internationals, like, there's not really the same restriction on movement. But even, like, for the four months, I like, couldn't really get into Israel. It didn't really bother me. I was like, yeah. <laughs> I'll go another day. <laughs> I mean, what, can you say why, why why you couldn't go into Israel? Yeah, because they thought I was an activist. Yeah. But... Oh well. <laughs> Supposedly they're giving me a visa now, so it doesn't matter. So, so you haven't gone into Jerusalem yet? No, no, I have when I had a visa. And I did once, but I had to go around a um, like village checkpoint. So you went into Israel without a visa? Yes. Cool. But, yeah, I don't know. Because, <laughs> yeah, the, I mean, the problem I would have was going to checkpoints where they have a computer system because then they look at your passport number and they've got it all on the system and everything. But when you walk through, it's just easy because they kind of look at your papers. And I had a letter from the university, like, this girl's trying to apply for her visa. And then um, Guy, the checkpoint soldier, we just had a chat for half an hour. So, yeah, but obviously it's completely different. Like, I'm saying I'm not bothered by not being able to go to Jerusalem for four months, but, yeah, it's kind of, like, nothing in comparison to <laughs> everyone else. But... 
Wait, so the, what was the phrasing of your question? Again? Um, like, what's travel like? In, in terms of, I guess, permits or visas and, like, I guess, avoiding checkpoints. I, I was particularly interested in what you just said because I think of, I imagine Palestinians who don't have permits also find ways to get in, like, yeah, tra- yeah. jumping checkpoints and stuff. I don't know if that's... My question was, like, what's travel like? As a Westerner? Yeah. Yeah. The route between, even just between Bethlehem and Ramallah is not my favorite, unless you're sitting next to someone really attractive. (laughs) Oh, that fucking road that goes from Ramallah to Bethlehem. I like it. Oh, I hate it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't care as long as I, because I like touching strangers, it's really nice, but not when it's like an old man. It makes me mad. No, it's just like self I actually felt bad for the old man who was sitting next to me. He didn't like it either. Yeah, also, I think the better. service system here is much better than the public buses back home. Yeah, the tra- in the countryside, of, like in British countryside, the public transport is shit. The public transport in this country is fucking amazing. It's the best yeah. public transport I've ever experienced. It's My great. friend from Wales came to visit, and he was like, "I need to bring this back to Wales because yeah, yeah. you can't get anywhere after about five p.m." What? When I, I grew up in the countryside for a bit, and I remember very clearly getting a bus to visit my friend and then getting off the bus, checking the timetable to see when the next bus back was and thinking, oh shit, it's two days away. <laughs> There's just no bus for two yeah, days. The bus right. runs three times a week. South of England. Well, Why would that? That's such, such a useless system. Yeah. Just to drop people off and be like, oh no, it's two days away. Yeah, and you can't just hop in a taxi because that would be like your week's wages. Yeah. <laughs> but here you can be, you can feel like you're in the middle of nowhere and then a little yellow minibus will drive past and you're like, oh no, I can always get back. Yeah, it's all yeah. fine. Yeah, like yesterday, I was just on the highway between like Bethlehem and Hebron, you know, outside Ten of Nations, and I was like, "Oh, I yeah, know, where I'm gonna are you get back." Sorry, I was just there for a day doing research for my um, university That's project. Cool. But yeah, it's just like, hmm, how am I gonna get back? Am I gonna hitchhike? And then like about four, so these buses passed. And I was like, "Oh, you never, you never far." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I really like it when they take detours as a group of cervezes, because then you can imagine them as little wild animals going... I've been in a cervez that's just driving along a mountainside with no clear road, and then you see other ones emerging, and it's like a sort of, you're in a nature documentary, and you can see a, a herd of gazelle across a beautiful mountainside, but it's just little yellow buses bobbing along. <laughs> Aww. Today on National Geographic, we yeah, watch exactly. the service buses feeding on their prey. <laughs> and they're also really pleasant colour. <clears throat> that yellow. Yeah. I really like that. Maybe it's desert disguise. Desert disguise. <laughs> Mainly mountainous, though. Anything else you'd like to say about Britishness or Palestine, the world at large? I wish there were more pubs. Like little, di- like like a what we would call a dive bar. No pubs, like you know, pubs. like uh, that's such just uh, probably just a British thing that I really miss. But it's just the local pub where they've got lots of ales on tap, and you know, there's all the regular old men who go there every night. And you go down to the pub for a quiz night. I might be too American to fully actually know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, this is a very British thing. Huh. So. <laughs> You probably have Irish pubs. Yeah, but they're not, like, they're, like, for tourists. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose that would be the closest equivalent. Huh. Yeah. Like a dive bar, like, where the same people go, and it's, like, cheap, and sometimes there's pizza. Yeah. Mm, pizza. Yeah, yeah, maybe. If it's a good pub, they let you bring your fish and chips in. Apart from that, I don't really miss England. More rain would be nice. <laughs> well, thank you very much.
You're welcome. You're welcome. That's very enjoyable. <laughs> Humble Mumbles is a production of Rebecca Books, LLC, an affiliate of both Bookstyle Publications and Barbarism. We're also on iTunes. This episode, part of an uncertain ad hoc series on foreigners in Palestine, was recorded in Ramallah. Special thanks to Poppy Lola, Rebecca's slimeball antagonism, which at the time of this episode teetered between party-line leftist phraseology and shiver-inducing grimy hedonism. Thank you to me, Dan Pasternak, for my voice. <laughs> Thank you to me, Dan Pasternak. Music for this episode was provided by Muzi Raps and Raid Basama at Javara Cafe in Ramallah on the very night Rebecca met Poppy and Lola. Wow. Wow. <laughs> wow. Palestine, this is my homeland.